Good morning, Hope Astoria. It's so good to be back at our physical home legal outreach. Um, so encouraged by God's faithfulness during this crazy season. And we're super excited about our return to in-person worship in just a few weeks. I'm going to begin in scripture as we begin a brand new sermon series today. We're going to study the book of James. I'm going to give you some context as to our focus. Let me read this passage for us. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Just one verse. Let me read it one more time. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for this opportunity to gather around your word. Lord, we come to your scriptures with expectation. We ask that you would meet us, that you would speak to us, cause your word to come alive to us. I, I pray for our Hope family that's watching from home, from various locations, family, friends, guests that are joining us. I pray this morning we would hear your voice powerfully. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, uh, during the height of the pandemic, I heard a story that was actually quite tragic. Um, there was a gentleman that he was planning to move out of New York City. He had lost his job, uh, his business shut down. It was just a bad season for him as, for, as it's been for many people. He was banking on this special watch that he had. He had some savings, but long ago, Apparently, during some card game, he won a very unique Rolex watch that, if this watch was real, would have easily been worth $25,000. Now, I don't know if you're a watch connoisseur. Uh, I like watches. I don't like them $25,000 worth. This guy was banking on the fact that push come to shove, hard position, he could just sell this watch. The story goes, he was sharing this detail. He was actually packing up, getting ready to move. He was having some drinks with some folks at a bar, outdoors, in the city, and he shared about this watch. And just so happened, someone at the table was a watch connoisseur. When they heard the specific name of this Rolex that's very hard to find, his ears perked up. It's like, if this is true, I could get this watch at a fraction of the cost, help this guy out, because apparently you can't find this watch anywhere. The guy was ecstatic. What he had been banking on all along is finally coming to pass. He rushes to his apartment, comes back with the Rolex, only to hear the tragic news that this was a false, fake watch. It was not authentic at all. Uh, my friend was there at the moment. He tells me this guy just went from ecstatic to absolutely heartbroken in a moment because he discovered that he wasn't holding on to something real. I begin with that story is because when it comes to faith, so many of us believe that we have faith in Jesus and we're banking on our faith to carry us through difficult times. It's the bedrock of our life, but how tragic would it be to only discover at a crucial moment that your faith in mine wasn't authentic, that it wasn't the real deal, that it was false, that it was fabricated, that it wasn't fully mature. 
And I think this season of life that we've all gone through and we're all coming out of is a season of life that we have to reckon that we can't afford to assume we have authentic faith and find out at crucial moments that we don't. And the book of James actually is a study in this idea of authentic faith. As we study this book together, we're going to wrestle with what authentic faith looks like. And for some of us, we're going to discover that maybe our faith has been battered and bruised and it's been tested, but thanks be to God, our faith is authentic. But for others, we're going to discover by the grace of God that maybe our faith wasn't really what we thought it was. And this will be a season for us to retool and to acclimate to God and strengthen our faith as we study these scriptures together. Let me give you some background information. The author of the book of James, this letter, um, is arguably the biological brother of Jesus, James. Now, there are some debates. Some people contend that maybe it was another author, but there's a good majority of scholars that say it was the biological brother of Jesus. And the date range of it being written is anywhere between A.D. 40 to A.D. 90, and the audience to whom it's written is actually right there in the first verse. It's written to the 12 tribes scattered to the nations. We're going to unpack that because that may seem a bit murky at the moment, but those words are highly significant. And actually, scholars have noted that the book of James is a bit hard to stream together thoughts. In other words, a few verses talk about this, then the next few verses talk about that. And so to have a consistent flow of thought in the book of James is kind of a bit challenging. In some ways, it's almost like if you've ever seen someone trying to parallel park and they're trying to squeeze into a spot, and what do they have to do? They have to go back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And as we study the book of James, it's going to feel like that a bit as we go back and forth, back and forth. But today, even though we're looking at one verse, I propose that in this one verse, we find the actual seeds of thought, the full framing of the entire book of James, just in this one verse. What we wrestle with over the next couple weeks is going to add to it, fully flesh out the ideas that we find in this one verse. And what ideas are those? I'll give you them right now. Three ideas, confession, context, and conforming. Confession, context, and conforming. What does that mean? Let's get into it. First thing to kind of flesh this out is I want to propose a question to you, a reflective question. If you ask the closest people to you, or even people marginally close to you, to give you an honest answer as to who you are. Say, hey, can you describe my character? Can you describe me the way you experience me? Give me a full, honest assessment. Some of us wouldn't want to engage in that exercise because we wouldn't want to hear some of the difficult truths. I know I wouldn't be uh, you know, fully ecstatic to ask that question at the, right, at the wrong moment to my wife or to my kids. They might tell me some stuff that, though true, I may not want to hear. But think about that. If you asked people to give you their full, honest assessment, people that have known you over a period of time, what might they say? What's interesting, carrying that thought over to this letter, understanding that James is the biological brother of Jesus, is that in this very first verse, 
he says something about Jesus that's profound. He confesses Jesus as Lord. Now wrap your mind around that. He's, Jesus is fully known to James. He's known him over three decades, 30 years. He's watched him grow up in the most up-close, personal ways. He knows Jesus fully. If people knew us the way James knew Jesus, they would know how broken we are, our history, our likes and dislikes. But James, after 33 years of being the biological brother of Jesus, watching him emerge from the waters of baptism, John the Baptist declaring him as the Messiah, hearing the teachings of Jesus and seeing him call disciples, miracles, seeing his life ultimately end in the betrayal of people that accused him, religious leaders murdering him by Rome. He was crucified, buried, rose from the dead. The Holy Spirit's poured out on, on God's people. After all of that, James sits down at least 10 years, or the range of anywhere between 7 to 50 years after all of this happens. And when James writes down his honest assessment of Jesus... He declares him as Lord. That is a profound thing to consider because I'll take my own history, for example. My sister has known me 41 years. That's how long I've been alive. She's my older sister. There's not been a day of my existence that she has not been in my life. If you asked her for her most honest assessment of me, though she loves me, there's one thing she would not be dare say. She would not say that I was the son of God. That would not be her assessment after knowing me all this period of time. Yet James, after knowing Jesus physically for all these years, his assessment, his confession is that Jesus is Lord. He declares Jesus as Lord, as the Messiah, as the promised king. That's one of the greatest apologetical moments in scripture. And that the biological brother of Jesus testifies to the world that he considered his brother to not just be his biological brother, but he declared him to be the Messiah, the Lord of all. That's the confession part of the framing of this entire letter. The confession that we wrestle with as followers of Jesus is that Jesus is Lord. And the rest of the book of James actually explores the implications of that, how that fleshes out in our daily life. On a day-to-day, moment-by-moment basis, the Christian life examines what it looks like for the lordship of Jesus to reflect and ooze out of every aspect of our life, to impact, to motivate, to transform our thoughts, our behavior, our emotions. Jesus is Lord. This confession is the most anchoring, transforming truth in the Christian faith. It's what makes us his followers. It's why we gather as a people. It's why we preach the gospel. It's why we serve and seek to transform brokenness all around us. Because we believe that Jesus is Lord. See, this is a significant truth that James is declaring, and it has huge implications for us today because whether you're aware of it or not, in our modern times, there's an ongoing debate that kind of comes and goes and ebbs and flows where sometimes people debate whether Jesus was actually Lord. But Christians actually at times will debate this idea, say maybe we got it wrong. Maybe the first followers of Jesus saw Jesus differently 
And then many years later, we came up with this idea that he was Lord. But maybe they didn't think that he was Lord at that time. But actually, James, this proves that. Because if he wrote this letter anywhere between A.D. 40 to A.D. 90, early on in the, in the profession of the Christian church, James is declaring that Jesus is Lord. Not that he is a prophet, though he was. Not that he's a moral example, though he was. Not that he was a philosopher, though he was. He's declaring him as so much more than that. See, they view Jesus as Lord, and it's no mistake for us in 2021, if we call ourselves followers of Jesus, to pick up that same confession and say that we declare Jesus as Lord. This, this letter puts that argument to rest. Just these very first verses, the fact that James is declaring Jesus is Lord, it tells us that today in 2021, when we declare Jesus is Lord, we are not saying anything different than the first followers of Jesus. And in fact, throughout the centuries, the confession of faith, authentic faith has been rooted in this idea that Jesus is Lord. Which brings up the question, why do we even debate the Lordship of Jesus? Why is this even an issue of argument? Why do Christians even entertain this argument and consider maybe he wasn't Lord? I propose to you a thought that I think helps to answer that question. I don't know if you've seen recent commercial. Apple has this commercial where it's basically trying to sell its privacy feature. The commercial goes that there's this guy, he goes to the counter and he buys some coffee. And after buying coffee, he's followed by a bunch of people. And then he goes somewhere else and he buys something else and he's followed by a bunch of other people. Each time he uses his phone, different apps, more people follow him. Then he finally sits down and he has the option, allow other apps to track you or don't allow. And as soon as he hits don't allow, all these people disappear. And what the commercial is speaking of is something that is a very real thing in our world. Right now, there are algorithms created to track your taste and mine. There are companies that devote so much time and energy to figure out what you and I prefer, and they track the time we spend on our phones, what we look at, our shopping interests, the, the, the things we write, all of these things. They're tracking it in order to tailor make advertisements just for you and I. Have you noticed that phenomenon where you'll talk about something, email about something, text about something, and sure enough, moments later, there's an ad for that very thing coming up in your social media feed. That's not an accident. There's an algorithm created to constantly tailor to yours and mine appetites, to our desires, to just keep giving us what we want. That's the world that we live in, where we are constantly being fed our preferences, exalted as the master of decisions, and we have the final say in this life. And then here comes Jesus declaring himself as Lord. And as Lord, he is not declaring himself as the meter of our endless needs. He's not saying that he is going to, like this algorithm, constantly just cater to our likes and our appetites. Actually, as Lord, very often he contradicts our likes and our dislikes. Very often Jesus, the Lordship of Jesus, pushes against our preferences. 
And so in this world that's so preference-based, where the individual is king, the idea of Jesus being Lord can rub us the wrong way. No wonder so many people debate this aspect of Jesus. They won't debate his teachings, his moral example, but they'll debate this aspect. They'll say, I like what he says, but I can't believe that this is who he was because if he's Lord, there's no way to be ambivalent about that. We are either conforming to that or not. James declares Jesus as Lord, and in those three words, he gives us an entire worldview. A way of looking at the world and framing our life is contained in those three words, Jesus is Lord. That's the confession. That's what the book of James spells out, the implications. If if he's Lord, what does authentic faith in the Lordship of Jesus look like in our day-to-day life? But what's the context? Who is he writing to? What's the meaning of this? And actually, we look at the first verse. He tells us who he's writing to. It says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, this is an interesting wordplay because James was actually writing to believing Jews in Jesus. See, the first followers of Jesus were Jews that came to profess Jesus as Messiah. And then later on, Gentiles, non-Jews, joined the community of faith. But at this time, James is writing particularly to believing Jews. And he uses this language. He calls them the 12 tribes that are scattered among the nations. Now, this is loaded language because what he's saying is, that now the Christian people are part of the diaspora, the scattered people of God. Now, if you know biblical history, the people of God, the 12 tribes, were scattered among the nations. And it was a journey of them returning to covenantal faithfulness, returning back to the promised land. their, Their journey was one of being scattered and yet trying to live out faithfully to God and God faithfully pursuing them. James now places the Christian community within the context of being a scattered people. Why, that's an important detail, and I think you're going to find great relevance for us, especially in this season of life, and that is that James is saying something that you and I would do well to process. When he says that Jesus is Lord, he says that within a context of disruption, He says that to a people whose lives have been turned upside down due to persecution. The first followers of Jesus were scattered among the nations because of intense persecution. Whenever they would profess Jesus as Lord, it would rub up against the powers of Rome, the religious institutions, and as a result, they were often scattered among the nations by threat of death. James is saying Jesus is Lord But he's saying that Jesus is Lord within the context of a very chaotic life. And I think that's important for us to hear because so often inauthentic faith would tell us that if we believe in God, it should lead to stability, it should lead to no problems, it should create a life full of blessings and no sorrow at all. 
Yet James is saying Jesus is Lord to people who are actually experiencing great upheaval. Their lives have been turned upside down. You and I need to process this truth that James is trying to instill in them. That even though Jesus is Lord, that's the confession that we hold on to. The context of life that we declare the Lordship of Jesus is often one of great turmoil, of suffering, of disappointment, of rejection, of of all sorts of adverse things. You and I hold on to that confession of the Lordship of Jesus in the face of great brokenness. When life doesn't go our way, when relationships don't pan out the way we thought, when jobs don't materialize the way we had hoped for, when prayers don't go answered the way we anticipate, we are called to hold on to this confession that Jesus is Lord. James was telling, reminding these people, Jesus is Lord, even though you're being persecuted right now, even though you don't know if you're going to see tomorrow, even though you've been scattered from your home and you're running from your, for your life because of your faith in Jesus, that was the context in which they were called to declare this confession. What's your context? What's mine? You and I as followers of Jesus are called to declare this confession that Jesus is Lord into very challenging context. Maybe right now the, challenge, the challenging context is in your marriage. You're going through a rough patch and you don't know the way forward. Maybe the challenging context is at your workplace. There's so much disruption. Are we going back to our offices? Are we not? Should I stay in this job? Should I not? Maybe the challenge is with your health. Maybe you've heard some disturbing news from the doctor and you're wrestling with what that looks like. Whatever the context is, whether it's financial, emotional, intellectual, whatever it is, you and I are called to declare that confession, Jesus is Lord, no matter the context of my life. I remember hearing a story of an American pastor meeting with some missionaries from the former USSR. Now, this was during the time where the Iron Curtain was up, and there wasn't Uh, you know, free access, free entry into the USSR if you were a professing Christian. Uh, It was communistic, so it was atheistic. They did not profess God, and so they would often arrest missionaries that would go and try to spread the gospel. Despite that, there was an underground church that grew in the USSR. And so this pastor was meeting with this missionary from Russia, who was there at the ground level. They were meeting on the ground uh, so that they wouldn't be detected, hiding from the authorities. And as this Russian missionary was describing their daily existence of having to hide and conceal and, and wonder if today's the day where they get found out, of knowing of friends that were arrested because of their faith, just the turbulence of all this stuff, the American pastor said, I pray for you in your persecution." He had this sense of empathy, but the Russian missionary actually had a different response. He told the American pastor, he says, I pray for you in your abundance. And what they were able to talk out is that fact that from the Russian missionary's perspective, he says, you actually have it worse because you have so much comfort, so much 
access to things. There's an ease in which you get to live out your faith that actually doesn't allow it to be as authentic as it could be. Why it's important to know that we hold on to the confession of Jesus as Lord within the context of suffering and difficulty is because outside of difficulty and suffering and testing and disruption, our faith in the Lordship of Jesus won't be fully authenticated. It may be sincere, but it may not ever grow into a fully authenticated faith. So what does that look like? If our confession is that Jesus is Lord, and the context in which James is, is reminding the people of God to confess that Jesus is Lord is a context of disruption, of persecution, of suffering, the Christian journey and what the book of James teaches us as we flesh it out is that our daily existence is one of conforming to the Lordship of Jesus despite the struggles in our context. Regardless of the challenges we face, the task at hand is how will you and I conform to the Lordship of Jesus? How will you and I come to Jesus with our brokenness, with the ways that our hearts stray and return to the simplicity of his Lordship? Romans 8, 28 to 30 says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined he also called, those he called he also justified, those he justified he also glorified. I want you to pay attention to verse 29, because it says the key to our Christian journey. If you've ever wondered what God is trying to do through the difficulty of your circumstances, through the challenges of your context, as you're trying to believe in Jesus, this is what he's trying to do, verse 29. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Everything you're experiencing, the good, the bad, the challenging, the hopeful, God is using all of that to do one thing, to conform us to the image of his son. If you've ever wondered what is God after, what is his will, what is he seeking to accomplish in the deep recesses of my heart, he's trying to accomplish this. He's trying to make you and I look more and more like Jesus. He's trying to shave off all the excess in our souls that doesn't look like Jesus. The attitudes, the prejudices, the thoughts, the emotional uh, perspectives that we have, everything inside of us, God is trying to conform all of our life to the Lordship of Jesus. Look at what else Scripture says about this idea of conforming. Romans 12:2 says, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Every single day of our life as followers of Jesus, we have this confession that we hold to that Jesus is Lord. We hold that within the context of our life and all the various challenges, and our aim is to conform to this confession. 
But we need to be aware that Jesus isn't the only one trying to conform us into his image. Romans 12.2 tells us that there's another thing that's trying to conform us after its own image, and that is the worldly system that we live in. Every single day, Jesus is trying to conform you to look more like him, and the world is trying to conform you to look more like itself. Every single day, we're being bombarded with multiple choices that are all trying to conform us either toward Jesus or against him, to look more like him or to not look like him. This is the journey of our faith, and as we study the book of James, we're going to see multiple moments where we're being called to conform to the lordship of Jesus as we seek to grow in authentic faith. As we close, one of the greatest challenges that you and I face as followers of Jesus, as he calls us to conform to his lordship, to on a daily basis surrender more and more to his lordship, to yield more and more to him, to essentially give him the keys of the car and say, you drive. I don't know if you've ever seen that bumper sticker, God is my co-pilot. I would never want to get in the car that God was the co-pilot on. I want to get in the car where God is driving the car. Because if he's the co-pilot, the driver could ignore the directions. We want God to lead us, to guide us. Conforming to the lordship of Jesus is acknowledging that he is Lord, that he's king, continuously giving that over to him. But one of the greatest challenges that you and I face in conforming to the image of Jesus is our deep addiction to comfort. Hear me well. Right now, the biggest hurdle for you and I to walk deeper with Jesus, to revive our walk with him, to be strengthened in the Lord, to do all that he calls us to do, our biggest hurdle is will we overcome our addiction to comfort? Right now, so many churches like ours are in the process of reopening, and there's so much that can be done, and there's so much that might not be done. The biggest challenge before us is how will the people of God let go of their comfort and actually say yes to the mission that's before us? Comfort is a deadly vice because it can hold us captive and we don't realize what it's holding us captive from. It coddles us. There's things that, that appease us, that make us feel just at ease and don't challenge us. And we can keep giving into that cycle of comfort, being our God. Or we can realize that if we're going to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus, we have to confront the addictive power of comfort and say, not my will, but your will be done. During this season, church, as we study the book of James, as we prepare to return to in-person gatherings, I can tell you one of the greatest challenges ahead of us is comfort. The truth is so many of us has grown, have grown comfortable in even the way we worship and gather with one another and that worship and gathering has been sitting on our couch for all these months. 
community has been looking at a screen. And there's a, there's a comfort in that. And thank God we had the means to do that, to stay connected during this difficult time. But that was never going to be our new norm. That was never going to be the, the pattern that we were going to adjust to forever. That was holding us over. But now this is a season where we're coming back together to be the people of God together in person. One of the greatest challenges before us is comfort. You're going to feel it that first Sunday where you get ready to leave your house to come and gather, and you're going to hear all the lies of comfort that are going to try to keep you on that couch. You're going to hear it the first time we start gathering in small groups in person. You're going to hear the voice of comfort. You're going to hear it the first time we begin to call people to in-person prayer and, or, or to serve in person, our community, and all these various things. Comfort, comfort, comfort will be the greatest enemy to you and I conforming to the image of the Lord Jesus. With that in mind, I want to invite you to take up this ancient confession. Jesus is Lord. Not my comfort, not my plans, not what I prefer, not my algorithm, not my likes, not my dislikes. His Lordship is what we're conforming to. And we're resisting the lies of comfort that keep us from that. With that, I want to invite us to pray as we close. Lord Jesus, as we begin this journey of studying the book of James, Lord, may we hear the confession of your church that has anchored us through the ages that you are Lord. And may we pick up that confession. May we declare it, may we utter it ourselves within the very context of life that we find ourselves in. Lord, in the face of difficulty in our relationships, challenges in our finances, Lord, relational stresses with our children, workplace disruptions, whatever we're facing, may we confess Jesus is Lord. He is king, he is sovereign, he is ruling over all. And Lord, may we daily conform to your lordship. Every single day, may we make the choice of giving you the keys to our life and saying, Lord, you drive this. You take me where you want me to go. Lead me forward. Not my will, but your will be done. And Lord, make us aware of the areas where comfort has drowned out your voice, where we can't even hear you challenge us and call us. Lord, because comfort has become the thing that we listen to most. Lord, may we conform to your image and resist comfort. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship together at this time.